Hey there, this is Brian. I'm the host of the Engaging Missions show. If you've found this show for the first time, I did want to take a second to let you know that this show is not currently in production. You're certainly welcome to check out all of the archives, but we don't have new episodes coming out at the moment. However, I did want to take a second to highlight one of the sponsors that sponsored the show a while ago. They're not currently sponsoring the show, but if you're looking for a place to invest in the kingdom, I'd recommend checking out Mega Voice Audio Bibles. You can find them at megavoice.com, or you'll find a link in the show notes, and I would encourage you to just check that out and see if maybe that's a fit for your giving. There's no compensation here or anything like that. I just wanted to highlight them. And with that, I'll get you back into the regular program. Did you know that there are five practices that can help you approach missions and ministry well? We'll talk about that and more. This is the Engaging Mission Show, episode 163, with Kent Annan, author of Slow Kingdom Coming. Welcome to the Engaging Mission Show, where we are bringing missions home. Here's your host, Brian Ensminger. Thanks so much for subscribing to the Engaging Missions Show. I'm really excited that you're here, and I'm really glad to be able to dig into Kent Annan's book, Slow Kingdom Coming. But we'll get into that in just a minute, because first I want to mention that I have a little bit of news about Engaging Missions. I'm going to be, at the time that I'm publishing this, I'm going to be heading to a conference in Atlanta, Georgia. That'll be the first weekend in November 2016. It's, uh, it's an opportunity for me to hear from missionary Mark Bink, or Mark Brink, rather, with Global Initiative. They're doing some really amazing things by uh, bringing some desperately needed ministry to Muslims around the world. I'll have the opportunity to hear firsthand from what they're doing and what they're being, what's being able to be accomplished. And I'm also going to have the opportunity to commit to raising some funds to help support that. So I'm really excited to do that. I also want to mention that if you would like to be one of the engaging announcers, make sure that you subscribe to the email newsletter by visiting engagingmissions.com slash subscribe. And then when that newsletter arrives, just reply and let me know that you're interested. If you have any questions or anything, I'll be glad to answer those. On to this week's guest. Kent Annan is the author of Slow Kingdom Coming and Following Jesus Through the Eye of a Needle. He's also the founder and co-director of, I'm sorry, the co-founder and co-director of Haiti Partners. I think this is a really timely conversation. I think that you're going to find this really valuable. With that, we're going to head right into the interview. Kent, welcome to the show. Great to be with you, Brian. Now, this is this is super exciting for me, and I, I think this is a really timely conversation. I know I mentioned this to you in email as well. Over the last few weeks or so, it's been kind of coming up on the show, the concept of justice or of doing short-term missions correctly with, you know, trying not to do more harm than we do good. And so I'm really excited to be able to have this conversation. But before we get into that, I'd like to know maybe a little bit more about you, kind of get to know you a little bit. Can you share maybe a little bit about your, yourself and your family beyond what I've already shared? Yes, yeah, so I was born in Canada. I grew up there till I was 10, then moved to Florida. I uh, lived in Florida till I was 20. Went to university down here. When I was 20, I was on a track to go into business and was studying business and was president of our university's business club. And then a family friend recruited me to get involved in missions. I know you talk about missions here on the program. And so he said, hey, just come try doing missions and work with this refugee ministry for a couple of years. You know, and I think he, he said, come do it for a couple of years. And that was 23 years ago. <laughs> and so I went and worked with the refugee ministry in Europe for a couple of years. And it really set me on, on this 
this path where I did that for a couple of years and came back and went to seminary, got married, and then my wife and I, after being married for two years, moved to Haiti. And, you know, we'd been married for two years. We got on a plane, headed down to Haiti within 24 hours. We were living out in the countryside in Haiti in a tin-roofed house with no running water and no electricity and sharing a room with a, a farming family there and lived there for two and a half years and it's just beautiful became part of working on education in Haiti and lived there for two and a half years and then for the last 10 years I've been going back and forth and working for a nonprofit that focuses on education in Haiti with churches and with schools so there's kind of the, the quick bio of what brought us to this moment here together. That's great. And, you know, as you shared that, there are so many things popping into my head. I mean, just the first one is the idea of moving from Canada to Florida. <laughs> there's, a, there's a transition there. I mean, it's a little bit different uh, in terms of not only climate, but also culture. And as I think about what you've talked about, I think there have been some significant cultural shifts throughout your life, going from Canada to Florida, from Florida to, I think you said Europe, and then to, mm -hmm. to Haiti and to all of these kind of things. How has God worked in and through your life as you've transitioned through cultures? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I, I always like it. I think I, uh, a few different things, I mean, it's a question I haven't even thought about exactly, even though it's been a theme in my life. I appreciate you asking it, but I think <laughs> that there are... The two things that popped to mind right away are, one, I, I feel like I've, I've learned so much about God and faith, and I think a lot of people will have experienced that to get to be in a in a worship service where I don't understand the language, but we're worshiping the same God. And just the way that that expanded, you know, that is sort of a small example of how my understanding and experience of God grew by having the opportunity to be with different people in different parts of the world. I think that's one. I think uh, there's something I, you know, it's not comfortable, but I like sort of the discombobulation of <laughs> crossing cultures because it makes me pay more attention, you know, pay more attention to God, make, pay more attention to dynamics of relationship of, you know, what, how to work for justice in another culture or what's just or unjust in, in my own culture. So I think that, that sort of awakening that happens in crossing, crossing cultures, I've always been really grateful for. And, and the fact that I've been able to learn so much about God and faith and just other people's experiences has been a real gift in my life. Oh, that's that's cool. And I'm I'm really glad that you mentioned attention. I think that we're going to get to that a little bit later as well as as we talk about your book and the the practice of focusing attention. I'm wondering, as you think about your, your life and your ministry, is there a time when you had to walk significantly, either step out significantly in faith or walk in faith while God was doing something in your life? Yeah, for sure. I think, you know, these these different moves, like I, you pointed out that first move of being in college in Florida and then deciding I was going to go work with a refugee ministry. It wasn't by my faith, by myself, but certainly a, a bit of a step of faith where I other people do it too, but it felt vulnerable and like a risk to try to go and serve in that way. And then, and then leaving that and coming back and going to seminary and just kind of diving into that. So these sort of big moments, you know, and then certainly moving to Haiti with a fairly newly married and moving in yeah. a relatively extreme way with my wife, you know, all these, it felt like these, these moves of faith where I'm, I'm hoping, um, hoping God will, will meet me and be there because it seems like a little too much that more than I can handle on my own. And it's the, at the same time, it's sort of part of my seeking 
after God. Like when, when we have thought about it at different times is I, if my experience and understanding of God can't make it across borders, you know, then I need to reevaluate what I believe or if what I believe when I'm, you know, comfortable in a sort of safe neighborhood in Florida, if I can't say the same thing about God in a place in Haiti that's really struggling and suffering a lot, you know, then I need to reevaluate what I say about God. So I've appreciated that it's stepping out of faith and also been a bit of a, I don't know how to say it, you know, sort of a a test of the faith and sort of wanting my faith to, to be sure it's faith and not just that I'm believing in uh, in an American God, for example, but mm. that I'm believing in a, a God of the universe. Can you say that a little bit more about that, the idea of believing in the God of the universe rather than believing in an American God, if you will? Well, I, I think, you know, someone would be sort of thinking how I write about this in my second book, which is Aftershock, that's really looking at faith and doubt and suffering. So I get into this in that book and sort of what do I believe about how God will protect me or protect, you know, protect someone else? Or how do our prayers for God's protection work? And if if we're in a relatively safe place, it can feel like, oh, our, our faith is is really linked to our protection. If you're in a place where, you know, life is just dangerous and on the edge of survival, then that challenges a bit my understanding of how God intervenes. I don't have all the answers, but I just know it sort of throws those kind of questions into into more into relief, you know, so so that I'm really left with with faith and with relationship and trusting in a God who doesn't always protect us, but a God who is always with us. So I think those have been some of the ways that I that I think that crossing cultures and trying to ask these questions in different places has pushed me to see, for example, in that book is one of my conclusions and that that book is just that I wish we had a God who protected us from suffering, but we we don't have that God, even if we'd want that God. And sometimes I think we we want to claim that God, but we do have a God who's with us in suffering. Mm. And I think that's true for us in America. But sometimes if we're depending on our circumstances, we we can hide a little bit from that. Whereas, you know, if you're in a place like Haiti, you can't hide from, I think, that reality of of God who isn't always protecting us, but who is always with us. Yeah, you you know, as a as a person who was raised in the U.S. and who's lived my entire life here, just been out of the country a few times, that's definitely true of me. Trying to think, you know, how would I live in a culture where I did I couldn't run to a grocery store and pick up food, or where my biggest problem wasn't how am I going to pay a bill in a couple of months, but literally how am I going to feed my kids today? Right, right. Have, a lot of times when we hear about those kind of things, we'll also hear stories like, oh, you don't know the joy that people live in or that kind of thing. But I think that's only maybe part of the reality. Can you share a little bit about your experience with people who are living in a different culture and how they approach that relationship with God? Yeah, I know I'd always be careful to say, like, oh, being just like us, there'd be so many different perspectives and different people experiencing mm, yeah. things in different ways. So no, no monolith or one way people experience it. But for a lot of, say, friends that I've gotten to know, in my experience of knowing them, the, the first, I, I kind of felt like I went through three waves of exactly what you just talked about. And the first wave was, 
moving to Haiti, for example, just being struck by the suffering in a way, which is that, you know, just the, the lack of, of supplies, the lack of food, enough food sometimes, or, or just basic conveniences. Then the second stage, I think people who go on short-term missions would experience this sometimes too, but then you spend some time and get to know, oh, well, it's also there are people who tell jokes and have mm. friendships and relationships and joy and tell stories, and so you see that that joy is really beautiful. That when I found by spending more time and living there is then the third phase was being there long enough where I wasn't just in and out of their lives, but experienced a bit of life together and saw the grind of poverty is just unbelievably hard. So the same people would be smiling and receiving a short-term team or something, but to see year after year, you know, struggling to send your kids to school or your daughter gets malaria and you can't get medical care for her or, or, or your son dies from something that you just, he wouldn't have died of in Haiti or in the U S and, and to not have a vocation that was meaningful and and think there's probably no prospect of ever having a job that was really meaningful and that could provide really well for your family and so that the third phase was kind of going beyond seeing that joy and just see the the grind and the pain that continues so it doesn't get you know and then that that involves joy and faith and worship and all those things too but i think your question's a good one and those would be sort of the three three parts I saw. And so I think I found those challenging for me to, to then think about the relationships and our relationship with, with them. And then also, you know, thinking about God's, their experience of God and their experience of life where faith is really profound, but it's not like it, it took care of all the suffering. So, so I'm thinking about that and I'm, I'm going, you know, in that situation, I don't know how I would respond. That would that would mess with me. That would mess with my theology. And I would hope that I would go to the scriptures to find answers and to find perspective. Have you found any perspective in in the scriptures that helps you with this? Yeah, again, I, like the, the, the biggest one just on this, what we're talking about right now is really the Psalms that I found so oh, yeah. helpful in that there aren't, I think, you know, there's sort of theological responses and understanding, but I think just the Psalms that are so honest in also being okay with not understanding and also just encouraging us to be really, really honest, you know, honest in, in the, the joy that we've talked about, but also honest in the lament and also honest in calling out like, where are you? Oh Lord, where are you? And so my second book I mentioned is sort of structured around Psalm 13. And so to have this psalmist, to to have our own scripture with this cry of, where are you, O Lord? And the answer comes, but it doesn't come right away. Mm. And I think that's been one of the places where I've been challenged, but also felt like my faith has deepened. Are there any particularly meaningful scriptures in your life? I think that the, the Psalms in those ways, like we just mentioned, I think mm-hmm. we'll get into this a little bit more, but I think that what I've really been thinking about for the last few years is Micah 6-8, to think about these kind of issues and and family. Now I have, I have a son and a daughter who are 10 and 7, and so this Micah 6-8 of, you know, well, what are we supposed to do with our lives? And God says, well, you're supposed to do justice and love mercy and walk humbly with God. And I find, you know, the busyness of life and demands and my own preoccupations or, or ambitions or selfishness and all these things, I find Micah 6, 8 just is, is this amazing call back to what's most important. 
That's cool. And and I guess this is kind of setting us up for the next section. So this will be the last question before we take a quick break. But I'm wondering, are there any particular habits that you've found really contribute to what God's been able to do in your life and ministry? Hmm. I think, I mean, having having friends, uh, you know, friendship with my wife, as, as well as other friends who are seeking after God and to do justice and can wrestle humbly. And it's, I don't know if that's quite a habit, but, you know, having friends is such a important part of it. I think reading both scripture and then other people's experiences, I think friendships that go across, you know, cultural, racial, national borders, I think it's been a huge gift in my life and something that's been really meaningful and I've sought to do. And I think these, and then, you know, there are different spiritual practices that, that help me out. And I think we might get into those a little bit more uh, in the time ahead, but yeah, I think all of this kind of variety of the regular practice that, that people find helpful and sustaining of friendship and making sure being emotionally sustained and spiritually sustained and, and relationally sustained have all been helpful, whether I'm in Florida or, or in another country. Wow, that's great. With that, we are going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to shift our focus. And I think we'll spend a little bit of time talking a little bit more about your ministry and about uh, one of the books that you've written. Great. Thanks, Brian. Hey, Engaging Missions listeners. This is Jim Baker from episode 119. Thank you so much for being a faithful listener to this show. Brian has been a huge encouragement to me personally and to my podcast, Doing Ministry Well. After a long hiatus, we finally have some new episodes up, and we'd love it if you check it out over at doingministrywell.com. All right, we're back. We've been talking with Kent Annan, and we've gotten to know him a little bit. Now we're shifting our focus more toward his ministry and then a little bit more toward one of his books. So first off, Kent, we mentioned that you're the co-founder of Haiti Partners. Can you share a little bit about what Haiti Partners does? Yes, Haiti Partners is focused on education and really the overall philosophy or mission that we say uh, we're about is that we help Haitians change Haiti through education. So going in there and knowing whether it's in Haiti or somewhere else where you're working, that we are going in and we're not going to solve all the problems, but that if we can help through resources and expertise and and serving, if we can help Haitians change their own country, then that's really our approach. And education is such a, a great tool for that of giving people opportunities to learn and, and grow and serve and work for change in their own communities. So that's really our focus. So we focus in two primary areas. One is with schools. We have uh, seven elementary schools with uh, over 1,100 students, primary students, and that's one way. And then the second way is working with churches, and we specifically have uh, like 34 what we call MICA scholars. These are students who get full scholarships from us to go to one of three Haitian seminaries, or they go to three different Haitian seminaries among the seminaries there, and they intern with us and work on children's rights and women's rights and environmental issues, and we're really able to support the Haitian church by helping with education and mentoring and formation of the next generation of church leaders. So that's really our education focus and working with schools and with churches. Oh, that's great. And I, I really appreciate that your heart and what the focus of the ministry is really to empower the Haitian people for for the, the desires of God to rise up through them rather than to be brought in from the outside, so to speak. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I think that's that's the that's the hope for long term change for sure. 
Yeah, definitely. And I guess that kind of brings us then to the book, Slow King, Slow Kingdom Coming. We'll see if I can say this. And for those of you who are listening, I want to mention, we will have a link for this in the show notes if you want to pick it up. And if you care about justice, if you're looking at this and you're going, oh, I want to make sure I do short-term missions right, or I want to have a better perspective on how to live out justice, I do recommend that you pick up this book. If you use the show notes, that link is an affiliate link, so I'll get a few cents if you buy it. If not, you can just look it up in Amazon. Seriously, I just recommend this book. So, Kent, as we're, as we're shifting to talk about your book, I guess I'd like to hear a little bit about who this book is for primarily. Yes, well, I, I think you mentioned one of the main groups. I, you know, I started writing this book a few years ago, and I was just coming up on twenty years of, of largely focusing on this kind of work, uh, work around justice. And I thought, well, I hope I've learned some things, some things by failing, some things by succeeding, <laughs> and some things by by watching other people who are doing really good work. So as I was doing that, I really came to think that writing this book for a few different audiences. I think the kind of audience who would be listening here, and one is to church-type folks who go on missions trips, who support ministries, would be a, a local homeless shelter, a family family center, people who have lost their jobs, foster care, whatever it is. I think for, for people who are doing that kind of work in their community, as well as internationally, which would include short-term missions trips, I wanted to give something that, uh, a book that really gives sort of a, a grid and these practices for people to think systematically about how are we doing this work. And I think I'd say, you know, many people would have heard of a book, either read it or at least heard of a book called When Helping Hurts. It came mm -hmm. out about 10 years ago and you know, I think that book was great and I was I, I think it served so many people so well I really saw this as a book to hopefully serve people who are on that path of when helping hurts what, what are next steps how can they reflect theologically on the kind of work they're doing and really doing and really give a, a positive vision and tools for them to move forward on that path so I think that's one group I think a second group would be you know people in university in their early 20s who are getting involved whether it's full-time or just you're working in business and getting involved on the side and how you're serving serving Christ and serving your neighbors and thinking oh I've learned these things like I said through mistakes and through through breakthroughs and learning and thought, oh, I want to pass on what I've learned so that hopefully you can be further down the path than I was when I first got started. And I think the, the third group would be for organizations themselves. So they've had different staffs of nonprofits who are reading the book together and boards of nonprofits and charities, like whether it's in Colorado or in New Jersey or wherever they are reading this book together. And it can be a nice way to reflect on how and missions committees who are reading this book together as they think about working with refugees who are coming in. So it's a lot, but I think all, all within the, this area of people who want to love their neighbors, whether locally or internationally, and what's this positive vision for doing so in a really thoughtful way. Yeah, that's good. And I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned the book, When Helping Hurts. I think my experience with that was probably similar to at least a few other people where I read the book and I go, okay, well, clearly what I'm doing isn't the best but I didn't feel like I had a plan or something that would go, okay, now how can I do this right? It, it left me with a really good framework to understand and yeah. to kind of get some, some basic understanding, but then to go, okay, now what do I do? I, it left me, frankly, just kind of going, okay, what should I do? And that's one of the things I really liked about your book is that even though I, I still have questions, I mean, I'm going to be honest, I have questions, but you shared a few things that really helped me and really kind of spoke to my heart. One of the things you talked about was the idea of five practices. Would you mind sharing what those practices are and maybe a little bit about each one to help us understand them? 
Yeah, exactly. And I, I think I, I found some of that too. And I felt that at different moments, whether it was with helping Hertz or with other, other books of feeling some of that paralysis. And that's part mm-hmm. of exactly what I wanted to address in this is people not feeling paralyzed on helping other people, but to step forward kind of in faith, but also in thoughtfulness, you know, with heart and head fully engaged. So the way I, I structured this and thought a good way to think about this was to give readers five practices, five practices that I would say, you know, if we do these practices, they can really help us engage in thoughtful ways of loving our neighbors and their practices. So uh, we don't have to be perfect before we start and we're not going to be perfect, you know, uh, two years in, but there are these things that can help us keep on reflecting and keep improving along the way. So the five practices are the first practice is attention. And this practice of attention is where are we called to focus so that we're awakening to the need for justice, knowing we can't solve all the problems. We can't, we can't address every injustice we see on Facebook, but where is God calling us to engage? And then how can we keep renewing that? So we don't, you know, face compassion, fatigue and burnout. The second practice then is confession. As we, we awaken and get involved, I think we're going to do much better if we confess our own vulnerabilities, say, you know, that we like to feel good when we, when we help other people or that we do get compassion fatigue. I've found confession helps lead us into an honest understanding of, of power and of the dynamics and of our own vulnerabilities. And that helps us to serve way better for the long term. The third practice is the practice of respect. Whenever we go into these situations of, of helping people, we can hurt them as well. But I think a great antidote to that is to be really thoughtful and deliberate about practicing respect. And so having deep listening and engaging our imagination so we love our neighbors as ourselves in a really more profound way than we do sometimes. Uh, the fourth practice is a practice of partnering. In partnering, you know, anytime we work for change, there's going to be so much partnering involved. So I give some ways that people can think through how they can partner with others and not just for them that can lead us into more profound, lasting partnerships. And then the, the final practice is a practice of truthing. Uh, it's not a word that Stephen Colbert made up <laughs> or that I made up, but uh, this practice of truthing is, you know, basically how can we get the best ideas and have our feet on the ground and see that, that when we're involved in loving our neighbors and doing this kind of work to help other people, we want to keep on having the truth shape us so that we're helping in the best ways possible. So that's a, a, a quick run through. Uh, and I, th- I find that these, any one of these practices, practices can help someone, you know, oh, that, that one can really help our, uh, what we're trying to do right now. But taken together, these five really can give a, a way to think holistically about what we do. And I think they really reinforce each other in a positive way. Yeah, I thought so as well. And I guess I'd like to spend, if we can, maybe just a little bit more time talking about the first practice, the practice of attention, because I think for a lot of us, it's going to be a really powerful starting point. In the book, you mentioned that there was a church, I think it was Calvary Church, that started practicing attention. Can you mm-hmm. share maybe a little bit about uh, about that story, about what God did in and through that church? Yeah, it's this great church I got to know, you know, three or four years ago, and this church in Calvary had been working on been a growing church or in a, a medium sized small t- sized town in Michigan and you know they're growing as a church and came to the point where they 
uh, needed to build a new building. So for several years, they did a capital campaign. They raised millions of dollars to build this new building so that they could, you know, seat a thousand people on a Sunday morning and and grow the way that their their church was growing. Um, they did this. They finished the capital campaign and Pastor Frank, and they they built the building. You know, so Pastor Frank went on this two day spirit kind of spiritual retreat before they were going to have the banquet when they're going to celebrate finishing this big project and um they're going to burn the mortgage and then they're going to get ready for phase two and phase three of this project because uh they'd finished phase one so he went away on this retreat and and just i think stepping away for 48 hours he realized he was exhausted and he realized the church was exhausted and realized what they actually needed was not to dive immediately into phase two and phase three but to declare a year of jubilee from the Old Testament concept of this resetting of resources and and kind of resetting a focus on God's faithfulness and looking outward to make sure that justice was being served broadly in in society. And so they did that, and the way they did it was really beautiful. They decided to they they built this building for themselves. So they decided to go out to six or seven countries around the world, and they did one. I think they did one in the U.S. in Harlem, and they went to India, and they went to Haiti, and different countries, and helped you know build a school, build a church building, and help other people. And, and hundreds of people from their church went out and did this during the year, and they gave away hundreds of thousands of dollars in this reset. You know, really beautiful, beautiful experience for the year, and. I think meanwhile the pastor and the you know the elders the leadership team had had print, I think they had actually printed up the brochures you know brochures for phase 2 and phase 3 that were going to be coming up next and they figured they'd dive in after this year of jubilee but they got a surprise when everybody came back from all these experiences of having a year of jubilee they said you know what we don't want to just have a year of jubilee we want to be a church of jubilee and they, seven years later, they've never started phase two or phase three of their <laughs> building. And what they've done is just become really involved in ministry. And they decide they need to focus if they're spread too far, that their attention that had been awoken in this beautiful way would be spread too thin. So they've focused their attention really largely on working in Haiti and helping out in Haiti and then also working in their own community in Michigan, especially around foster care issues and school and tutoring and those sort of issues. And they have been really deliberate on sending people out on trips and getting people involved in their communities. And to me, as I, I thought about their story, it was great. And then I started thinking about this practice of attention. I found it really helpful for my own lot. And I thought, wow, this is great. Like they, they were, their attention was awoken uh, to the need for justice and they followed that. But then they realized they needed to focus because otherwise they'd, they'd get spread too thin and they wouldn't learn and get better. And thirdly, they needed to be renewed in their attention mm. because they needed practices. Otherwise, we know all of us can kind of burn out and, and lose our, our focus. And so I, I really thought those three parts of awakening to justice and focusing our, our efforts on justice and then finding ways to be renewed in the way we do this were three great ways of thinking about attention that I think can apply to us as a, as a church, but also as a family or as an individual or group that we're working with. Well, that, that's good. And, you know, I really, uh, I'm thinking about that, the comment that you made about how at first they were spread too thin. And just to be frank, that's one of the things that I struggle with, you know, having mm -hmm. interviewed uh, over a hundred missionaries, it's yeah. really hard to keep up with all of them. And it's hard to choose because I, I actually want to stay connected to every one of them. Mm -hmm. Did, 
did they apply any, how did they choose who they were going to stay connected with? How did they choose where to focus their attention? Yeah, you know, I, that's a good question. I mean, I think they, they did a process of, of praying. They thought about where they could go, you know, that they thought, oh, if we're going to do this for the long term, I think the fact that they could fly to Haiti made sense. So I think, in a, and they were mm. both seeking God's guidance and then thinking practically, like, how do we do this so that we can stay connected? Uh, you know, just like in your case, you know, talking with so many people, sort of thinking, okay, who, who could I stay connected with practically? Who am I going to run into at least once a year? I could maybe see them in person because I can help the relationship going. Mm-hmm. So they yeah. did this, this, uh, which I've found in my own life too, this sort of combination of thinking really spiritually and thinking God's guidance and then thinking, thinking practically on, okay, what are these ways that we're going to do this that we, that we want to sustain our attention. So uh, there may be more as well, but at least those are at least two ways that I observed that they, they worked on discerning that where their attention was being called. Yeah, that that's really good. And and frankly, there's so much more in this book that I want to get to. We're not going to have time in this section to cover everything. I, I know I mentioned we wouldn't get to everything. I, I thought we would get to more, but you know, there's just so much to dig through. There's so much meat here. I guess I'd like to tie a bow on this section by just asking a question about the practice of truthing, which is the fifth practice that you had mentioned. You shared in your book that um, that, that that it's really, it can feel like sometimes adding truthing, which is the practice of making sure that what you're doing is based on the truth, that the results you're seeing are based on the truth, a lot of that kind of stuff, can feel like we're adding something to a to-do list that's already too full. Can you Hmm. share a little bit about how how people can approach truthing, knowing that what you're doing is right and that the results are accurate? Yeah, I I think for me, it sounds like maybe for you too, and it would be for other people that this, uh, this, you know, the, the amount of studies that come out and they're proving one thing and maybe they that gets reversed two years later can mm-hmm. be a bit discouraging over time and also we have this idea that sometimes helping hurts and it, some and we don't realize till later so you know i was thinking about that and thinking well what what can we do and i thought this process of truthing where we're we're committed to this process of having the best ideas and then also having our feet on the ground and experiencing these things uh, it shouldn't feel like fear or like a threat, but it's actually this beautiful invitation and freedom, freedom that we don't have to be perfect or know the the perfect solutions. But if we, we go in with attention and with, with confession and with respect and with partnering, then seeking the truth means we just get to keep adjusting and keep getting better. And, and I think truthing is, you know, another way to say it might be it's discipleship that we get to keep growing and that God's guiding us and that God's given us minds. And so we use our minds in the best way. And we might not always have the most resources, but we can learn from other people that have a little bit more resources than us. You know, if they've done a study or found something out. So, you know, at different times as I've done my work in Haiti or with refugees or in local community here, you know, it can be, be discouraging because you don't know what's, what's um, bearing fruit or what's doing its best. And I thought, well, actually, we don't have to have perfect knowledge, and nobody does, but it can be really freeing to think, well, we're called to be faithful, and I think we're called to be fruitful as we love our neighbors. And if we seek truth and keep, keep being willing to be shaped by the truth, 
And that's a, a beautiful invitation to to moving forward. I say at the beginning of the chapter, you know, truth without love is just like this sort of shiny object that's not mm. moving anywhere. But love without truth is like a boat without a rudder, you know, sort of aimlessly out there. But when we have love and truth working together, I think that's a, a, a beautiful way forward towards helping helping other people flourish and in, in moving towards justice. Wow, that that's good. It's going to take me some time to process what you've shared, but I'm just thinking about the idea of truthing being part of discipleship. That 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 in itself is a concept that's going to take me a little bit of time. So thanks for giving me something to think about. With that, we are going to take another quick break, and when we come back, we're going to shift our focus one last time more toward the minister. Here's a taste of what's coming up on the Engaging Mission Show. Almost everything we do in our Christian walk is a, a faith walk when you break that down, but mm-hmm. but the sense of provision, uh, not only uh, economically, but health and logistically and opportunity. Mm-hmm. In other words, wanting to go, having a call to go, and having the opportunity to go because you've been asked to go or if you will, given an open door mm-hmm. or an open invitation. When you can come, let us know and we'll set something up. Those all, all of that mixes together with faith. Uh, the, the logistical planning for trips is a huge step in faith because depending upon the mechanics of how far out you know you can book things, uh, then you've got an issue about stewardship in terms of the, the further out I can buy purchase Right. Flights, the cheaper it'll be, and that translates to stewardship because uh, um, there's an aspect of preparation that requires you to move in faith going, I'm going to go again. I just don't know when, and I just don't know how. If you enjoyed that, you won't want to miss a single episode of the Engaging Mission Show. Subscribe in iTunes or Stitcher to have it delivered automatically. Visit engagingmissions.com slash subscribe. That's engagingmissions.com slash subscribe. All right, we're back with Kent Annan. He's, frankly, he's been blowing my mind. Not only was his book good as I as I went through it, but now as we're talking about it more, there's, there's just so much here to think about. Now, as we shift our focus, though, I, I want to focus on you as the listener. Kent, as I'm thinking about our listener, most of them, most of the people who listen care deeply about missions, but they maybe don't feel called to full-time vocational ministry. What would you share with somebody who's called into the marketplace, but they're starting to wonder if what they do really matters in the kingdom? Yeah, I think, you know, this fourth practice we just talked about really briefly of partnering, uh, it's something that, that I've learned I and mean, been so grateful for in, in the ministry I've been involved in, and often full-time, and not, not always, but often full-time. And, man, for the, for the people in the marketplace, like, their partnership is invaluable in, in helping ministry happen. So, like, your role is... Uh, is amazing both in just what you're doing day to day, uh, relationships with colleagues at work and coworkers and customers you're serving and using your gifts to, to, you know, serve your family. And also, you know, so much of ministry like churches happen and people serving people who are poor or if it's world vision or Haiti partners or whoever it is like all that happens because of gifts of people who are working hard day in and day out and sharing their money generously. So, um, and then so much volunteering that happens. So I I would just, you know, there could be a moment where someone's listening and they 
are being called to shift vocations into something full-time, but I just want to affirm anyone who has a, a calling into the marketplace. That is a, a full calling of God that is in no way lesser than uh, a calling to missions, and it's together that we partner as different parts of the body, and to me, I, I feel so generous sometimes to be this bridge between people who really are working in the marketplace. I get to be the bridge of, that's how I see it, between their generosity and then these amazing colleagues I work with in Haiti. So I feel grateful to get to be a bridge. And in that position as bridge, I just have huge amounts of honor and respect for people on both sides, people in the marketplace here in the U.S. and people in Haiti who, uh, Haitians who are doing the work day in, day out. Wow, that's good. I, I appreciate that image of a of a bridge. That's that's pretty cool. As you think about somebody who's maybe living here in the U.S. or in North America, and they're beginning to realize that more and more of their neighbors or their coworkers are people who are from a different world religion or perhaps a place where we thought a, a few years ago maybe only missionaries go there. What would you share with them? Yeah, I, man, I, I think it, both in this the the couple practices here, attention and respect, are a couple of them that I, I think are are really applicable to this and it's thinking about, you know, how is our attention awoken as, as our world shifts, as our neighborhoods shift? Where are we called to serve serve Christ and and love our neighbors? So I think that's one part of it. I think this chapter on respect has this really beautiful cultural example from Haiti that just sort of slows us down and think, how do we respect and get to listen to mm. and know our neighbor? And so I think as things shift, I, I think, you know, and we we know we're in a political time and different fears come up and, you know, rightly and wrongly or wherever they are <laughs> on the scale and none of us know exactly. But I would say as followers of Jesus, that perfect love casts out all fear, right? And that, it, that it, instead of a time of of fear, it seems like it, it's a time of, of love and not in denial of everything, but the generosity of love is beautiful. And for, there's actually one church I got to visit who's reading Slow Kingdom Coming as a template that's helping them as they receive a refugee from Syria. And so they're reading this book as a church to think through how can they help this Syrian refugee family and be really thoughtful in the way that they serve them. So, so, so I think it's obviously a, a bit of a turbulent time, but I think that's, that means it's also a time where we have opportunities for love and grace. Wow, that's good. Is there maybe a book or a resource that you'd recommend for our listeners? Uh, along that line, that is a good question. You know, there's a new book. Oh, I should have uh, written this down. It has refugee in the title, but World Relief is a big nonprofit that does a lot of work with mm-hmm. refugees. And there's like Stephen Bauman is one of the authors. Matthew Sorens, I think is the name of the other author. And refugees in the title. I'm feeling embarrassed now that I didn't have that right at recall. I thought of it <laughs> earlier and just lost it. But but I think if you go to World Relief site or do that, then they've been really thinking through some of these issues of, you know, because they, they're serving both overseas, but then also, you know, working with people who are receiving refugees here. So I think that, that would be one resource of a, of a book that I know people are finding meaningful to think specifically about this refugee question in the context of your kind of bigger question about, you know, how we think through this time with a lot of change and shifting going on. Oh, that'd be great. For those of you listening, my plan is to have everything linked up in the show notes, which will be available at engagingmissions.com slash Kent Annan. That's A-N-N-A-N. Now, Kent, we're just about done. Would you mind sharing with us maybe one last piece of advice and a good way for people to connect with you? Then we'll say goodbye. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, I'm on social media, so Facebook and, and Twitter. It's 
slash Kent Annan, and also have a website, kentannan.com. And one resource there that I invite people to, and it's a, a practical thing for people who, like you said, who are, who are a lot of listeners who aren't in missions full-time, we've created two different discussion guides to go with this book. One is for if a, a you know Sunday school class or just a book club wants to read the book, and they're great questions that people can use. So that's one. And then the second uh, material we have is I have a friend who's a mom and lives in the suburbs of Atlanta and read the book and really liked it and created this family toolkit. It's a fantastic uh, resource that I've actually used with my kids and our family since then. So it has 20 car questions, call them. So hmm. questions about just doing justice as a family right here in the U.S. And, you know, one, one example of a question is, you know, to ask your kid, you know, a seven-year-old, I've done it with a 10-year-old, it would work with a teenager. Uh, I'm actually going to be doing it with the youth group in our church soon. And, hmm. you know, if you could have any superpower to help in the world, what superpower would you have? And my friend's, you know, son had said he wanted to be Aquaman because he'd heard <laughs> about the problems that some people have of not having access to clean water. And so, hmm. you know, these really great questions to start reflecting as a family. And then there's some activities that you can do that are practical and fun to think about how you can get engaged in your community with these five practices as a guide from the book. And then also some, some prayer prompts for how do we pray about a world like you were just saying, Brian, that, that feels turbulent and overwhelming at times. We want to be engaging, but also praying. So um, so those resources would be available at those sites and at kentannon.com. So I, I think these practices really can apply uh, however you're engaged in mission, whether it's at your church or locally or part-time or full-time. Oh, that's great. And, you know, for a guy with young kids, I'm thinking maybe that that car toolkit would be a great thing for a, a long drive. So yeah. I appreciate you mentioning that. Thanks, thanks, Ken, so much for being with us. I really appreciate your time and your generosity. Thanks to Kent Annan for being with us and to you for joining us. Show notes are available at engagingmissions.com slash Kent Annan. That's K-E-N-T-A-N-N-A-N. That's where you'll find ways to connect, comment, and share. Come back next week when we'll be hearing from Wayne Berry. We're going to talk about what's led a worship pastor to make over 20 short-term trips to Africa. The best way to make sure you don't miss that or any episode is to subscribe using your favorite podcast app. Visit engagingmissions.com slash subscribe. And if you have a story of how you have been equipped, challenged, or inspired through the Engaging Missions show, we'd love to hear from you. Please send an email to feedback at engagingmissions.com. Thanks for listening to the Engaging Mission Show. You can find more great content like this along with show notes by visiting engagingmissions.com or by subscribing to the show in iTunes or Stitcher. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll be back next week.